We've got a great show for you this week. Australia's top actress scolds us all for daring to even consider rejecting the voice. The Minister for Aboriginal Affairs says we're using the politics of division in the greatest gaslighting effort in modern history. Julian Assange endures his 11th birthday in captivity. We explore his story. And Donald Trump Jr.'s tour down under postponed. Was it the Labor government's political interference? We'll investigate. And Caitlyn Jenner has an important lesson for young trans activists. G'day and welcome to The Other Side Australia, your weekly shortcut summary of the news of the week here on ADH TV for the weekend commencing the 7th of July, 2023. I'm Damien Curry. This is the show where we bring you the news from a good old fashioned, but maybe slowly coming back into fashion, classical liberal perspective, as we strip away the endless woke nonsense from the way news is normally presented these days. This is the other side, Australia. Let's go. Stop everything, Australia. The actors have spoken. Those people who lead normal, balanced, sane lives and have to deal with all the same day-to-day -day issues we all do, like whether our Evian water supply is running low or our Met Gala outfit will dazzle the crowds. Australian actor Kate Blanchett, never short of a woke opinion or 10, says this year's referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament is an extraordinary time for our nation's history. It is a strange time, but it's an extraordinary time for an extraordinary country. It does make me sad that there's a lot of fear being generated about a really positive moment for us as, as a nation. So let's see. Activists want to change our constitution to, an include, to include an entire chapter, not just a clause, but an entire chapter, which will demand a special voice to parliament for a specific group of people based on their race, based on the fact that their ancestors, and maybe just one or two of their ancestors too, by the way, got here first. Even though none of us should feel any less Australian if we were citizens born overseas or citizens born to ancestors within the past 235 years. That is the change that we're being asked to vote yes to in this referendum if the government is stupid enough to proceed with it. Is there anything better than a tediously woke Hollywood actor lecturing people about politics and the law? A Melbourne private schoolgirl who got an arts degree from NIDA telling the rest of us how we should think. Not, I have a feeling I'd like the voice, I like the idea, what do you think? No, scolding. Scolding us as if we are not as smart as she is. As if we are somehow foolishly fearful, sad little conservatives and classical liberals who don't understand the, the deep feeling humanity of the far morally superior woke left. But it gets even better. Now she's gonna lecture us about the law and the constitution with that NIDA education. And you know, we have to remember that the, the primacy of parliament is not under threat. It's not under threat. Mm. It's, it's just that you know, there's, it, parliament is a place where the important issues of the day are debated and, and all points of view are listened to and the government parliament makes legislation, they make decisions, the parliament makes those decisions. Right, the thing 
just the vibe of the thing. No, nothing quite like getting a civics lesson from a condescending Hollywood movie star, is there? The primacy of Parliament is not at risk. That is true. But the fairness of it is. When you allow a special group or a special chamber, if you like, to give special voice to 3% of the population based on their racial heritage, that is a very serious step in the direction of a specific ideology, left-wing identity politics. We're giving special privilege to a race in our constitution. Next, it'll be a gender. I mean, why shouldn't we have, if we've got a racial, we should have a gender one. And then it should be a sexuality one, right? Everybody has a worthy cause, Kate. And pretty soon there'll be a flag and a special voice to parliament for everyone. But do carry on. I mean, I, I, I so value your, your educated opinion. But there's a certain voice that is never really an, in a non-partisan way, in an eternal way, represented at that table, and that's an Indigenous voice. And we, it's time we evolved to include all Australians. And it's, you know, it's the more inclusive cultures are, the more vibrant they are. And I think it's, you know, it'll be a sad moment if we miss this opportunity. We don't want to look back. Ah, uh, it's all about the feels. She's an actor. So we've got to all, you know, just kind of, you know, feel it. Turn off our brains, disengage all rational, careful consideration, and just go for those warm fuzzies. Well, you might want to tell the 11 Indigenous members of our current national parliament, Kate, that they don't have a voice. I'm sure they'd be very interested to know that. They actually got there on their own merits, and they don't need your patronising, condescending, racism of low expectations. You know, women only achieved suffrage 120 years ago. And at that time when that vote was happening, change felt terrible. And the debate was all about the society's gonna collapse and we don't know what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen if women get the vote? Now, can we imagine a world mm. in Australia where women didn't have the right to vote, where their voices weren't heard? No, we can't. And so I'm hoping in another 120 years time, we'll look back at this moment and say, can you believe yeah. we almost missed that opportunity? <laughs> Absolutely. You yeah. know, it's, it's a great moment for this wonderful country. And that is why you should never take political advice from actors. Kate Blanchett there, ladies and gentlemen, proving to us all why she's an actor and not a lawyer and dropped out of her economics degree at Melbourne Uni after one year to go backpacking, darling. Uh, where to begin with that logical mess of an argument? This is nothing like women's suffrage, Kate. Aboriginal people already have the right to vote. We're a democracy. The equivalent idea here, the equivalent analogy, would be setting up a women's voice to parliament. Actually, to be worse, a left-wing women's voice to parliament would be the more accurate analogy. Could you imagine that? I mean, please do. Please imagine it very, very clearly, folks, because that is what they're asking you to vote yes to. A special chamber with special access and rights of consideration and input over laws that affect everyone, not just them, it's all laws, because all laws affect Aboriginal people. If ever there was a clear case to vote no, Kate Blanchett just defined it perfectly. Give the woman an Oscar. So Albo's Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Linda Burney, gave a speech at the National Press Club this week on The Voice, and it was the usual stuff, light on facts and detail, 
large on personal attacks, emotional nonsense and put-downs of people who dare to question the thing. She urged voters not to fall for the no campaign trying to get their way with using Trump-style politics in Australia. Trump-style politics. What does that mean? And its aim is to polarise. Its aim is to sow division in our, in our society by making false claims, including, providing, including that providing advice to government would somehow impact the fundamental democratic principle of one vote, one value. A claim designed to mislead. Wow. If you want the absolute definition of gaslighting, folks, that was it. Left-wing Aboriginal organisations and leaders bring this thing to us. A voice to Parliament for a particular race of Australians that will forever cement racial division in our country. And then they accuse you of being divisive and patronising and polarising, sorry, not patronising, polarising, for arguing against it. Don't fall for the Trump-style politics. No, you should fall for the Yes campaign using Marx-style politics to get its way in Australia. Like bullying you into voting Yes by falsely saying you're a racist if you don't want to. It's not a lie to say that the voice threatens the idea of one vote, one value. The Voice will be a special advisory body to Parliament. This means a select group of citizens based on their race will have a higher level of access and influence than the rest of us. So that does kind of end the concept of one vote, one value. Also, a large majority of conservative Aboriginal leaders and people do not want the Voice. So it's going to be a left-leaning voice to Parliament. And I suspect that this is what this is all really all about. Enshrine a Greens and Labor-leaning political body in the Constitution. It's very serious stuff. And to question it is to seek clarification. If you alert people to the dangers of something, the very real dangers, that is not fear-mongering. If you want to avoid misinformation, Linda, then provide some detail. But please don't insult us when you haven't provided any. As National Party leader David Littleproud put it, she couldn't answer the questions around the details or the mechanics of the voice about how it would actually shift the dial, particularly for those in remote and regional areas. As Littleproud pointed out, Minister Burney keeps complaining about mistruths and misinformation on the voice, but she refuses to put it to bed time and time again when she's asked point blank about the details. And of course, she got personal, as people who are arguing for something that have no argument always do. They attack the other side's character or reputation or personal characteristics. Ms. Burney described Peter Dutton as a bully boy for criticising big businesses that were backing the voice. Let's just, let's just revel in the irony of that for a second, shall we? A left-wing politician is upset because big business is being bullied. Only in this brave new world of woke corporations and woke left-wing political parties would you see such an unholy alliance. Mr Littleproud called on the Prime Minister to stop the referendum, to take a pause and bring the nation with him and, quote, actually admit that it's now time to just make this about constitutional recognition only, unite our country, 
and then get on with closing the gap with practical measures of a better bureaucracy, not a bigger one. Well said. But what struck me most about this whole National Press Club event was the serious lack of neutrality displayed by Australia's journalistic elite. At the end of Bernie's presentation, they gave her a standing ovation. Now there are political people and guests in that room too, but there are a lot of leading journalists as well, and nearly everyone is standing and applauding. So you know what side your news is baked on, on this issue moving forward. WikiLeaks founder Australian Julian Assange turned 52 this week, his 11th birthday in captivity. How weak is Australia in its relationship with the US that we can't bring this one to a close? As Philip Adams wrote in a petition to free Assange this month, perhaps the only thing I agree with Philip Adams on, quote, Julian has been deprived of the comfort of his loved ones, the warmth of the sun on his face, and the simple yet priceless freedom to walk where his feet might take him. Assange's family were granted an audience with the Pope this week, as Canada's CBC reported. Assange's wife Stella and children were granted a private audience with the Pope at the Vatican on Friday as she leads the campaign for her husband's release. She has exhausted virtually all legal avenues of appeal. Assange is wanted by U.S. authorities on 18 criminal counts after WikiLeaks published thousands of classified documents and diplomatic cables in 2010 and 2011. His supporters see his prosecution as a politically motivated assault on journalism and free speech. Assange is held in Belmarsh Prison in London. He's been there since 2019, when he was kicked out of the Ecuadorian Embassy in London, where he'd been holed up after seeking asylum there years before. Here's how the BBC saw it. Hoy, anuncio que la conducta irrespetuosa y agresiva del señor Julian Assange han llevado la situación a un punto en que el asilo del señor Assange es insostenible e inviable. He was jailed in London for going on the run from the Swedish allegations. And even though that case was later dropped, he remained in a cell because the US requested he be sent there for trial. Julian Assange's immediate fate was now in the hands of District Judge Vanessa Baretza. She had to decide whether he should be sent to the US under the law of extradition. And she ruled that his leaks looked like a crime under both English and US law. But she then blocked the request saying that there was evidence that Julian Assange was so mentally unwell he could try to kill himself in a US jail and nobody would be able to stop him. Assange is now facing prosecution in the US under the Espionage Act, a law that has never been used before against someone for merely publishing classified information. The not very deep state, as I like to call it, the bureaucracy and intelligence agencies, hate Assange because WikiLeaks made information public about alleged war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, Guantanamo Bay, American diplomacy generally, that they say put spies' lives at risk and internal democratic politics before the 2016 election that Trump won. Specifically on that last one, Hillary Clinton's emails leaked by hackers linked to Russia's Vladimir Putin. 
And I reckon it's that last alleged crime, more than anything else, that explains why they're truly pursuing this guy beyond all reason. Five major media organisations, including the left-wing Guardian and the New York Times, published a letter late last year saying that Assange's indictment threatens to undermine the First Amendment and sets a dangerous precedent. Canada's CBC spoke to one independent journalist. Recently, even the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, said there is no point in this continued prosecution. So why hasn't the U.S. dropped these charges? Yeah, it's a very good question. Literally every major press freedom and civil liberties group in the West, often which agree on very little, have united to urge the Biden administration to do so on the grounds it's the gravest threat to press freedom in the West. The history of the U.S. security state, the CIA and the uh, NSA and Homeland Security is very much that if somebody exposes their secrets, even when those secrets are evidence of crimes or other deceit and corruption, as was the case here, they want to punish the person to the fullest extent to really destroy them, mostly as an example to warn others that if they discover evidence of criminality and are thinking about doing the same thing, their lives will also be destroyed. Now, you may be wondering why Assange is still in London. Well, the former UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel, approved Assange's extradition to the US in June last year. But Assange's legal team is appealing against that decision and nothing moves fast in the justice system these days. So what did Assange actually do? Well, it wasn't so much what Assange did, but what WikiLeaks did. They've come after Assange because he was the boss, but WikiLeaks is a reasonably large-sized organisation. The US indictment brings 18 charges against Assange. Most of them centre on the publication of secret military and government material by WikiLeaks, which they got from US military whistleblower Chelsea Manning. A warning that we're going to show you the video now, and it's graphic. But I think we all live under the protection of a violent military in a dangerous world. So we all need to be grown-ups and face that reality. This report is from Al Jazeera in 2010. For more than two and a half years, the wire service Reuters has been trying to find out what happened to their two staff members on this street in the suburb of New Baghdad. WikiLeaks says this is what happened. The voice on the tape, presumably a member of the military, says there has been shooting in the area and receives permission to open fire. Light them all up. Come on, fire! Keep shooting. God damn it, Kyle. Sorry. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. From a distance, you hear the voices on the tape watch as the wounded try to crawl to help. But when help arrives... Come on, let us shoot. You're engaged. 1-8, okay. Clear. Come on. Clear. Oh yeah, look at that, right through the windshield. <laughs> In this video, I think you see the corruption of pilots and the military by war itself in particular by modern nature of aerial warfare. So you see these young pilots acting like they're playing video games, only the high scores they are getting are with real human lives. We call frequency. Yeah, I just drove over a body. <laughs> yeah. Hyper 5, 2, report, free chains on 4. 
Even from high above, the harsh reality becomes evident as the troops that arrive find two children wounded. You see them carry their small bodies and call for help. Hey, uh, I need to get the rat, the brass to drop rats. I got a wounded girl. We need to take the rest of my. The response on the tape. Oh, it's their fault for bringing their kids to a battle. That's right. It's hard to watch. That's war. But important that we understand what war really looks like, I think. And, and I'm not one to criticise the men and women that we send to do our dirty work. This is a war zone. They thought the enemy were armed. We asked these men to kill for us. And they have to handle it psychologically, not us. Both during and after their service. We weren't there, so we can't know. But that's a matter for another discussion another day. The point now is that for leaking that video, Chelsea Manning copped a sentence of 35 years jail. But President Obama commuted the remainder of her sentence in 2017. But Julian Assange remains deprived of his liberty just for publishing it. Ah, the irony. Experts at the esteemed Columbia School of Journalism in New York say the 2019 charges against Assange are the first time the US government has used the Espionage Act to go after a publisher. Not the hacker, not the writer, but just the publisher. And the implications for free speech and the freedom of the press, therefore, are huge. The main charges centre on whether Assange actually helped Manning do the hacking instead of just being the publisher. Manning herself said this at the time she was released from jail. Quote, the decisions that I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks and the website were my own decisions, and I take full responsibility for my actions. And here's what Hillary Clinton said at the time. You, you have some familiarity with the work of Mr. Assange. Uh, I, I do, I do. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, is my view, but... I think um, it, is a, uh, it is clear from the indictment that came out. It's not about uh, punishing journalism. It's about uh, assisting the hacking of the military computer to steal uh, information from uh, the United States government. And look, I, I'll wait and see uh, what happens with the charges and how uh, it proceeds. But you know, he, he skipped bail in the UK. You know, Sweden had those charges which have been dropped um, in uh, the last several years. But the bottom line is uh, he has to answer for what he ha is, has done, at least as it's been charged. So let's just be clear. The reason Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy until 2019 was because he'd sought asylum there. The British police can't enter a foreign embassy, even on its own soil. Diplomatic convention and rules mean an embassy is considered the soil of the country it represents, not the country it's in. But the point is this. Assange sought asylum there to stop his extradition to Sweden. The Swedish authorities wanted him over sexual assault allegations. It wasn't those allegations that he feared that saw him hide out in the Ecuadorian embassy. It was Sweden then extraditing him to the United States, possibly. The sex assault investigation was eventually dropped because Swedish prosecutors said the evidence was not strong enough. Hmm. 
It seems the easiest way to get someone these days and damage their reputation if you need to for any political reason is sexual assault allegations, isn't it? That's not good for real victims of sexual assault either, I might add. But when Sweden dropped those charges, which seemed to have been suspiciously dodgy to say the least, Assange still couldn't walk free because the Brits then wanted to arrest him for avoiding arrest initially and going into the Ecuadorian embassy. So then when the Ecuadorians decided he'd overstayed his welcome, he went straight into British custody. Then the Americans brought their extradition request. You see how this works? It's like Rambo. It all starts with a parking ticket or a speeding fine or whatever it was. But see how Hillary muddies the waters there. See how they play on your confusion and the complexity of the story. Oh, well, there were, there were the charges in Sweden. Then he was in jail in London. So he must be a baddie, blah, blah, blah. And everyone just goes, oh, okay, he's a baddie. One less thing I have to worry about there being an injustice in the world over. And, and then we can forget that an innocent man is effectively rotting away in jail for nothing and go back to watching the footy. It's a bit like what former US national security advisor under Trump, John Bolton, tried to do when he came face to face with Julian Assange's wife, Stella Assange, on Piers Morgan's Fox Nation show late last year. And when he gets to the United States, he'll get due process here. And I hope he gets at least 176 years in jail for what he did. Stella? Well, of course, uh, Ambassador Bolton is kind of the ideological nemesis of Julian. He has, uh, during his time for the Bush administration and later the Trump administration, um, sought to undermine the international legal system, ensure that the U.S. is not under the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction. And if it was, uh, Mr. Bolton might... Uh, in fact, uh, be prosecuted under the ICC. Uh, he was one of the chief cheerleaders of the Iraq war, which Julian then exposed through these leaks. So um, he has a conflict of interest here. Ambassador Bolton? <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. I have an opinion. So does, so does Assange's wife. I guess we both get to speak them. Uh, you know, I think that what she fears is being brought to the United States and having Assange put under trial. If he's innocent, uh, if you can, she can at least show reasonable doubt that he's not guilty, he'll go free. What's she worried about? I, th I guess what she's worried about is a fair trial, because it's pretty clear what the attitude towards him is. Well, let her say a large number of that, Americans. That's fine. That, let, let her say Julian Assange cannot get a fair trial in America. Let her say it. OK. Well, he cannot get a fair trial in America because he is being prosecuted under the Espionage Act and he cannot bring a public interest defense. Let's hear her say that he can't get a fair trial in America, says Bolton. He can't get a fair trial in America, she says. The Justice Department under Trump first brought the official criminal charges against Assange in 2019. And as soon as Biden was sworn in as president, he pushed even harder for Assange's extradition to America. But the US government under Obama had said it wouldn't prosecute Assange because of the precedent it would set. But like so much about Obama, it was a lot of hot air and no action. People were hoping Joe Biden would honour the pledge of his old boss, but so far, nothing. So how weak is Elbow? And how weak was ScoMo? And do the Americans really value our alliance? And what about the UK's revolting role in all of this? You might argue that what Assange did was wrong and put the security of intelligence and military agents at risk. I wouldn't argue that because I think we all have a right to know what our governments are doing in cold and hot wars abroad and in our name.
Some secrecy is necessary in war, of course, and we permit that as a people by letting our governments classify information. But it would be good if our governments remembered that we are letting them do that on our behalf, that we start from a position that we have the right to know and work backwards from there on secrecy for a war effort. If something leaks, well, the responsibility for that lies with those who are supposed to stop things leaking, like Russian hacks on the Democratic Party servers. The responsibility does not lie with those who publish what has already been leaked. That's like punishing a reporter writing about a bank robbery for the bank robbery itself. The publication of the bad thing that happened embarrasses the Hillary Clintons and John Boltons of the world, so you've got to go to jail for 11 years. It's disgraceful. And yet another indictment of free speech by the big government people on the left, and the right too in this case. It takes a lot to make me agree with Philip Adams on anything, but this case has done it. In any case, this Australian man has spent 11 years locked up and we've done bugger all about it. My position is clear and has been made clear to the US administration that it is time that this matter be brought to a close, Anthony Albanese told Parliament months ago. Well, aren't you the impotent one, Elbo? Nothing so far. Clock's ticking. And while the Aussie old media might be too dumbed down and unprofessional to cover this case properly, given its massive global significance for free speech and a free press, we will keep you posted on every month that goes by. Every month that proves how powerless Australia really is when it comes to getting what we want and what is right and just from our two closest allies, the UK and the US. Last week we brought you news about how the Albanese government is bringing in new laws that will impose massive fines on social media companies that spread misinformation or disinformation. These laws will basically give the government editorial control over what we're allowed to say and what you're allowed to see, hear and know. Anything that the censorship gods deem to be misinformation or disinformation will be covered, which means they can basically censor anything they like or don't like. The new powers will be given to a body called ACMA, the Australian Communications and Media Authority. And this is on top of the crazy powers wielded by one woman, the eSafety Commissioner, who already has the power to order social media companies to take down whatever she doesn't like. It's really terrifying stuff. Censorship happens by default. These laws exist and then they scare people like me from saying, writing and publishing things that might upset the government. And so we self-censor. Or we have to put our personal security at risk by taking a chance in publishing stuff that might upset these bureaucrats and their political slaves. You want to keep your job with this or that news company? Don't push the envelope too far. Don't rock the boat. Just cover the easy stories. Have a nice career. You want your podcast or show to stay on YouTube or Facebook or the Listener app? Be careful what you talk about. All in the name of keeping you safe. Keeping us safe from bad information. As if we don't have brains of our own and we need Big Brother, the government, to parent us, nanny us. This is not the behaviour of a free people in a free country. If we as Aussies are going to accept all of this as some kind of new normal, fine. But we can no longer call ourselves a free liberal democracy because we're not.
And the intolerant left wing in Australia just moves further and further away from the good left wing values of the olden days. Civil liberties, human rights, freedom of expression. And they descend further into the bad modern left wing values of massive state control of everything. So instead of just ignoring the tour of Donald Trump Jr. to Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney, which was originally planned for this coming week, and maybe having their own tour of someone they like, the left called for the government to ban the entry of Trump Jr. to the country completely. And what sort of a message does that send about Australia to the world? That we're an intolerant little nasty people who just want to cancel and shut down anything we don't like. That is not the Australia I knew and grew up in. And I'm sorry, but I'm not ready to surrender that Australia yet. That's not the Aussie spirit of a fair go, freedom of speech, freedom of ideas and expression, and playing the ball, not the man, when you're making an argument, that used to represent this country. It's pathetic. You don't like Trump? Fine. Don't listen to him. But where do you get off thinking you have the right to prevent your fellow Australians who want to choose to, who choose to listen to something, whatever political ideas they like, from whoever they want? And why do you think this is good for society? It causes wars and division. It's why we invented the parliament and the concept of free speech to prevent wars. Honestly, these cancel culture kids simply have no clue. It might take a war to wake them up. They think they can shut down ideas they don't like by force and that they'll never have to face a backlash. It's the thinking of a spoiled brat 13 year old. Grace Hill is the queer officer with the National Union of Students. And she told the US magazine Newsweek that demonstrators in Australia are fighting back against the importing of bigoted politics. Of course, Grace will be the one deciding what constitutes bigotry. She says, Donald Trump Jr. and Nigel Farage have said they're coming to Australia to fight woke culture. We plan to show them that there is a serious, large left movement here willing to stand up to bigotry in all its forms. That would be all bigotry except the bigotry and intolerance of the left, the kind that Grace has towards conservative or classical liberal values and political views. The values of around half of Australia and America for that matter. Most of us, Grace, would like to at least allow this country to remain free for political debates and speakers of all stripes. There's heaps of left-wing thinkers that I'd just love to cancel, ban and stop entering Australia, but I respect freedom of speech, ideas and expression, so I don't call for banning them. I prefer to win in the environment of open debate. I want my ideas to be challenged and tested. It's only people whose ideas are weak that call for their opponents to be cancelled or banned, or worse, imprisoned or killed. That's something the left has done throughout history, in real life, in reality, in countries just like ours in the last century. And that's probably all you really need to know about their ideas. Anyway, the tour organisers have uh, faced the police trying to force money from them to provide the cops needed to manage the protesters. Seriously, the police in Victoria, they wanted the organisers to pay them for the policing of the event and the protesters that are going to show up. I thought that's what we paid taxes for, to provide policing 
to keep the peace. But anyway, and some venues are not wanting to host the thing because they're too gutless and fear corporate backlash. Not realizing that the other side of politics is equally capable of providing significant commercial backlash. Anyone want a Bud Light? Got a Bud Light? Anyone? The tour organizers have decided to postpone the thing now. Donald Trump Jr. did get his visa at the very last minute and after a nervous wait and disturbingly long delays. Our wonderfully professional Home Affairs Minister in the Albanese government, Claire O'Neill, posted this very dignified message on Twitter on Thursday. Donald Trump Jr. has been given a visa to enter Australia. He didn't get cancelled. He's just a big baby who isn't very popular. Classy. Calling the son of the former President of the United States a big baby. That is your Minister for Home Affairs, Australia. God help us. And she didn't stop there. Geez, Donald Trump Jr. is a bit of a sore loser. His dad lost an election fair and square, but he says it was stolen. Now he's trying to blame the Australian government for his poor ticket sales and cancelled tour? <sighs> Does she know that she's a minister in the Australian government and not in some university politics club? Claire O'Neill, remember the name, the Albanese government's minister for home affairs, ladies and gentlemen. She's the member for the federal seat of Hotham in Melbourne's southeast. Take note, good people of Hotham. The other side has it on very good authority that the ticket sales for these events are excellent. And the event hasn't been cancelled, only postponed. As Rebecca Weiser points out in the Spectator's Flat White online this week, the handling of a visa for the son of a former president of the United States is a matter for Australia's ambassador to Washington, Kevin Rudd. When Prime Minister Anthony Albanese appointed his great friend as ambassador to Washington, he was taking a risk, Rebecca writes. The final decision on Trump Jr's visa rested with Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill, who has the discretion to refuse it under the Migration Act. But Rudd's boss, Foreign Minister Penny Wong, would have also been highly influential because she is responsible for foreign relations, including with a possible future Trump government, Weisser wrote. The first hint that the public got that there was a problem with Trump Jr's tour was last Saturday evening when the Australian newspaper published an opinion piece calling for Trump Jr's visa to be denied. Rebecca notes in her flat white article that the author of that piece, a guy named Bramston, says in his personal bio, that he is a former political speechwriter for Rudd and an advisor to the Rudd government. Would Bramston object to Hunter Biden visiting Australia, she asks, noting that Labor repeatedly delayed visas for Conservatives and the visa for Nigel Farage's tour last year was granted only a day before his departure. That tactic makes it very difficult indeed to put on a show. And that is no doubt the whole idea. We truly live in an upside down world. The left in the United States are freaking out because the US Supreme Court has ruled this week that race can no longer be considered as a factor in university admissions. That's right. People are freaking out because discrimination based on race is no longer allowed. Let that sink in. 
That's how absurd and perverse left-wing woke ideology and thinking has become. The landmark ruling means that so-called positive discrimination or affirmative action programs that give special privilege to kids of a particular race over kids of other races are no longer allowed. Affirmative action programs started 60 years ago as a way to increase racial diversity at top universities in America. In the test case, the Supreme Court sided with an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, which argued that Harvard University's race-conscious admissions policy violated Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination based on race, color, or national origin. Justice Clarence Thomas is America's second black Supreme Court judge. He's a conservative, though, who's long called for an end to affirmative action, so he's no friend of the left. He wrote that such programs were, quote, patently unconstitutional and that universities' self-proclaimed righteousness does not afford them license to discriminate on the basis of race. Chief Justice John Roberts said, many universities have for too long wrongly concluded that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. He said, Harvard's admissions process rests on the pernicious stereotype that a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. The Asian American Coalition for Education told the BBC that affirmative action had negatively affected Asian American students' odds of enrollment at elite schools, and that the decision will preserve meritocracy, which is the bedrock of the American dream. I agree. I think 60 years of affirmative action, three generations, is enough of a leg up for groups considered to be a minority or marginalized. University campuses in America are certainly very racially diverse today. Not that I think that's necessary because I believe in absolute colorblindness. I do appreciate some people are disadvantaged, so a program to help some disadvantaged kids is fine and that will no doubt continue. But selection based on race is fundamentally wrong and it perpetuates a sense of division, or as the lefty academics like to say, otherness. But of course, the left went completely nuts. President Joe Biden was furious, saying he strongly disagreed with the decision and attacking the Supreme Court itself. This is not a normal court, he said. The nine judges on the court are ideologically split. There are six judges considered to be conservatives now, and three considered to be left-wing. I'm sure if it was the other way around, he'd be saying it's a perfectly normal court, by the way. Harvard University just swore in a new president recently. It's 30th in its history. Now, I don't like her, and I want to make very clear why. I don't like her because she pushes left-wing woke identity politics, which divides people. I don't care about the color of her skin, her gender, or care to know anything about her sexuality, thanks. I'm sure she's a lovely person. I only care what is between her ears. And what is between her ears is grey matter filled with an academic career based on identity politics ideologies. And she, of course, hated this Supreme Court decision. We will comply with the court's decision, but it does not change our values. We continue to believe deeply that a thriving, diverse intellectual community is essential to academic excellence and critical to shaping the next generation of leaders. I couldn't agree more. I just believe what Harvard and all of the world's universities desperately need right now is more intellectual and ideological diversity. 
Because our unis have become places infiltrated by left-wing culture and ideology where conservative or even classical liberal thinking is mocked and squashed at every turn. So how about a positive discrimination program for a few decades that ensures political and ideological diversity more reflective of the balance in the wider community? Education that respects traditional values of Western civilization. Humanities programs that teach the classics to undergrads instead of indoctrinating them with one mindset, one ideology that is rarely ever questioned or challenged. For many, this decision feels deeply personal. It means the real possibility that opportunities will be foreclosed. But at Harvard, it has also strengthened our resolve to continue opening doors. To our future students, know that we want you here. We are eager to welcome you to our community. And I'm sure that the hundreds of Asian and ethnically European students who've missed out on places at Harvard because of racial discrimination, what we used to call racism, will be very happy to hear that now. That's Claudine Gay, Harvard University's new president. To demonstrate just how wonderful Harvard's become, the university that alongside Oxford and Cambridge was once considered the world's greatest, you'll be thrilled to know that they've turned to inviting more Hollywood actors to give the commencement addresses. How inspiring. Now listen, it's not fair but please don't be embittered by this fact that without having done a lick of work, without having spent any time in class, without once walking into that library in order to have anything to do with the graduating class of Harvard, its faculty, or its distinguished alumni, I make a damn good living playing someone who did. It's the way of the world, kids. It's a joke, and he's being self-effacing and very nice as he is, but it's also a sad comment on our times, I think. And when will Americans realize that actors are just people who act? Or Australia realize that, for that matter. I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks. He was very funny and self-effacing, but he's just an actor. You might want to come up with someone who's actually achieved something very difficult and amazing to truly inspire your young nation's young people at a commencement address. And closer to home in academic la-la land, the University of Queensland, one of the world's top 50 universities, has announced it will be permanently, permanently flying the Progress Pride flag at all of its campuses. It's Pride Month, the university announced excitedly on its Instagram page, and we're excited to share that the Progress Pride flag is now being flown permanently at our campuses. This comes as part of our commitment to fostering a culture of diversity, inclusion, respect and acceptance that is free from discrimination, harassment and bullying. Unless you're a conservative or a Christian, then you're fair game for all the harassment, bullying and discrimination we like. So. There it is, folks, the Progress Pride flag. That's the old rainbow pride flag with the big triangle on the left side added to represent all LGBTIQ plus people. It's flying there at the university alongside the poor old Australian national flag on the left, the Aboriginal flag, the Torres Strait Islander flag, the Queensland flag, the university flag, 
And finally, the wonderfully colourful Progress Pride flag, celebrating what some people do in their bedrooms. What's the university going to do when people want to put up religious flags? Surely a person's religion is more or equally as important as their sexual identity. Can we have a Christian flag, a Jewish flag, a Muslim flag, a Buddhist flag, a Hindu flag? Or do we only do sexuality flags now? Okay. What about an LGB conservative flag for gay people who reject trans and gender ideology? There's plenty of them. I mean, seriously, where does it end? There'll be flagpoles all over the place. You won't be able to walk. Just by the way, the Australian newspaper reported this week that Queensland's universities lost a combined $1.3 billion this year. University of Queensland lost the most money, $311 million, followed by the Queensland University of Technology with a $131 million loss. Maybe a little less time on rainbow flags and a little more on cutting wasteful spending on bad courses might be a good idea. Ah, but I'm just a curmudgeonly old man, a party-pooping fat middle-aged white guy, pale, stale, male and frail. Oh dear, you gotta laugh or you'll cry. Speaking of which, Lance Armstrong interviewed trans sports star and reality TV celebrity Caitlyn Jenner on his podcasts last week and it really hit some home truths. I think this should be a wonderful interview because you know what? You are a world champion. And it is very well documented that because of testicular cancer, you lost one of your testicles. Well, I'm a world champion and I lost both of my testicles. So anyway, there we go. And what a way to start. We're in in good hands together. So let's get down to it. And it's, you know, it's interesting because folks, a lot of, you know, guys like especially like to say, you know, this is, you know, that this is going to take balls. You know, who's got the balls to do that? And I always get a little sensitive. Yeah. I said, whoa, 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 hang on. Hey, it hang might, on, it hang might, on, might take on. some ball to do this, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad yeah, you can. You know what? In a situation like you just got to have some fun with it. Yeah. I mean, too many people, I think, take life so seriously. Yeah. Here, here. Caitlyn Jenner, now 73 years old, explained her discovery when she was Bruce Jenner that she was gender dysphoric. Uh, when I was growing up, I was gender dysphoric. I was yeah. also dyslexic, so I didn't really do well in school. To me, school was always very frustrating. And, and the gender dysphoria was, started as early as what, at least oh, it's, a, my whole t- life. Yeah, ten, I was a little very, kid. very early. Yeah, I Going mean, you're kind of born that way. Right, right. You know, are you, you right handed or left handed? Right handed. I'm left handed. Why are you right handed and me left handed? I don't know. Just kind of who we are. And you're that way your whole life. Being gender dysphoric, if you're truly gender dysphoric, you know, but I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And there wasn't even a word for being gender dysphoric. You just kept your mouth shut. And I went and played sports. Right. And and because of how I was, I mean, I, I took sports seriously. And clearly I struggled big time. I lived in a house right over here for six years, um, barely came out. Due to, due to the gender dysphoria. Yes. That, this was okay. Yes, yes. And this due to a, that, a I mean, time. I was on hormones. I thought I was going to transition before I was 40. And I got to 39 sitting in this house for six years, just going out to go to work. I wasn't a good parent. I did have some kids, but I wasn't a good parent. I was struggling in my life. Mm. I mean, really struggling every day. And what am I going to do? And I got to 39, couldn't do it, you know? 
as I think of it back on it, it just wasn't time for me. Um, especially at that time, the trans issue was not out there, okay? Um, it would have come really out of left field. And then, you know, I wound up meeting Chris. We were together for 23 years. We raised great kids, had a great family, successful show. Things went really, really well. And I started thinking, I first had to talk to all my kids. They knew, but they keep, you know, it's like the little secret in the family mm -hmm. nobody talks about. And I got to talk to my kids. And so I brought them one-on-one -on -one because I got 10 of them. I didn't want them to gang up on me. So I uh, sat down with each one of them. Uh, first one, Brandon. Um, uh, I used him first. He's my musician, my singer, and all that kind of stuff. I thought... Anyway, he goes, you know, he said, hey, dad, I've been proud that you're my father my entire life, you know. And I says, but I've never been more proud of you than I am right now. Oh, whoa, that was kind of a good start. My final conversation, I was walking in a field all by myself, you know, saying, God, is, is, is there a reason for this? You know, am I doing the right thing? So when I walk up the pearly gates and I go through the gates and he's there and he says, yeah, you did a good job. Come on in, you know. And so um, I made the decision that, OK, if I do this and then it was trying to figure out how do I do it? How do I do it in a respectful way uh, for not only me, but for trans people in general? That's Caitlin Jenner speaking on Lance Armstrong's excellent podcast. You can watch the whole one hour interview if you just search it up. Lance Armstrong acknowledged that he is probably not the best guy to be talking about fairness in sport. But he asked Caitlyn Jenner what she thought went through the minds of Aaliyah Thomas, the trans swimmer, when they beat biological women at their sports. I, I look at them and say, how can Aaliyah Thomas, is she excited? I mean, after I would beat all the other guys. Mm -hmm. I would feel like a million dollars. Right. You know, I would just read, I'm ready to kill. I won the games. <laughs> I walk out of that. I walked out of that place. I could take it on the world. Right. You know, I mean, I was so proud of my performance and, and on and on and on. I don't see how Leah Thomas can sit there and go, oh, I feel so great. I beat all those girls. Well said. And here's the main point I think we all need to remember from this interview. I don't know what the trans people, what goes through their head right. that they think, oh, my God, this is so great. I can go out and beat all the women, you know, um, because they're not. Right. I mean, show you how I look at my life. OK. I am a genetic male. OK. Now, a lot of these women say, oh, I'm, I'm all women. I'm women. You got to treat me as a woman. No, I'm a genetic male. You know, I my chromosomes are male. OK, I suffer from something called gender dysphoria. Correct. Gender dysphoria is real. It happens to people. Mm -hmm. OK, it is real. It's been part of humanity, just like you're right handed or left handed. It's been part of humanity forever. OK, and it's how you deal with it. And every journey is different. Some who have gender dysphoria very, I mean, pronounced, tough. I mean, it's in their head all the time as as a young child. Mm -hmm. uh, they struggle with it at a very young age. Some transition at a very young age. Some commit suicide. It is real, okay? Me, I kind of did my own thing. 
I raised my family. I have 10 kids. I got 20 coming up on 22 grandchildren. I've had a wonderful life, you know, but and it wasn't until much later in life that um, that I transitioned. Now, when I transitioned, uh, my um, my birth certificate. Caitlin Marie Jenner, gender marker F. Uh, my driver's license, gender marker F. Everything I have, pilot's license, gender yep. marker F. Right. Everything I have going through everything. I live my life. Um, and as a trans woman, um, but I am different. I, I'm not, I, and I respect that difference. I respect other women and how they feel. But we, we always have to say on the side of fairness and protecting women's sports. Or you won't, honestly, you won't have women's sports right. in 10, 20 years from now. And there it is. Simple. Is it that hard? She's a biological male with gender dysphoria who's transitioned and lives her life as a woman, but understands that she will always be a biological male. She now feels much better in her new body and she doesn't have to pretend in her daily life anymore. She can be herself, but she knows she isn't a biological female and she doesn't have to be to be happy. And she respects biological women's spaces. Really simple. And you know what? That attitude, it makes me feel totally fine about accepting her and even using female pronouns for her. Funny that, isn't it? Accepting reality and mutual respect. Now that is progressive. It's a great interview, well worth a watch for a breath of fresh air and common sense. The podcast is called The Forward with Lance Armstrong, and you can find it in all the usual places. And that's all for this week. We'll catch you next Friday for The Other Side Australia, our weekly summary of the best news and commentary. Uh, and on Tuesday night, remember The Other Side interviews streaming at 6 p.m. and available on demand at any time thereafter, as always. And don't forget, this show, The Other Side Australia, is always uh, streaming every Friday night at 8 p.m. If you like the show, remember our saying, don't just like it, share it. The independent media, we really do need your active support to keep on doing what we're doing. So please like, comment and subscribe to ADH TV and all the platforms we're on to support us. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.